Hi y'all, thanks for taking the time to listen to this installment of Go South, Old Man, a somewhat weekly podcast where a northern-born southerner explores some of the lesser-known things in and around the southeastern United States. Well, here in the U.S., we just finished up some national elections, and I think we've all just about had it with politicians. And it's easy to wish that we had some of the noble statesmen and servant leaders of the past. But, as Aristophanes wrote in 400 BC, under every stone lurks a politician. So unsurprisingly, there were politicians of the past who were also ambitious, ruthless, and morally corrupt. And in this episode, we visit the home of one such individual, Redcliffe Plantation in Beach Island, South Carolina. It's in the western part of the state, about 10 miles east of the river city of Augusta, Georgia. In fact, when the Greek Revival Mansion was built, you could see the red clay banks of the Savannah River, visible off in the distance. That's how it's got its name. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. This story revolves around one James Henry Hammond. Now, Hammond was born in central South Carolina in 1807, and he eventually graduated from what would become the University of South Carolina in 1825. He'd go on to become a lawyer, newspaper man, etc., and he was very involved in the community and politics especially. Well, in 1828, the U.S. government imposed some tariffs, which the state of South Carolina and Hammond saw as unconstitutional. When President Jackson failed to revoke them, South Carolina declared them null and void. Things got so bad that the state formed a militia expecting a fight from the U.S. Army. Hammond became a major in the South Carolina militia, but this whole nullification crisis was resolved before anything really happened. He then began courting a shy 17-year-old girl, Catherine Fitzsimmons, who just happened to be related to the Hamptons, probably the wealthiest and politically powerful family in the whole Southeast. Now, this courtship was unusual in that it took a while, since Hammond was of a a lower class, and she was very young, and her family also thought that he was simply a gold digger. Well, turns out they were right, but they would discover that he was a lot more than that. Anyway, with her large dowry, he'd acquire more than 7,500 acres of property, several plantations, and at least 500 slaves, making him now part of the wealthy planter class. The ambitious Hammond went on to use his new family's political power to become one of the most powerful politicians in pre-Civil War South. During his career, he was a U.S. House representative, 
governor of South Carolina, and even a U.S. senator. He was also a strong advocate for farmers, okay, albeit pretty much only the wealthy ones, and he formed the influential Beach Island Agricultural Society. He was also a leading advocate of the mudsill theory. This theory argued that there must always be a lower class to serve the upper class. And this made him one of, the, one of slavery's strongest supporters. In fact, on the floor of the U.S. Senate, shortly before South Carolina seceded from the Union, he said, you dare not make war upon cotton. No power on earth dares make war upon it. Cotton is king. Well, this would become a catchphrase throughout the Southeast for the next hundred years. And in 1859, though, Hammond decided to finally leave politics and focus on his plantations. To do this, and to impress others, he had a showplace plantation built. Redcliffe. It's a stately home with southern magnolias framing the lane. The plantation, though, was different than other plantations of the time in a few different ways. He tried here to experiment with some unusual crops. He grew white wine grapes and cork trees. No cotton here. It was also less than 400 acres. That's pretty small compared to his other plantations. And he also only had about a hundred slaves here, and they were comparatively well-fed and clothed. Now, I know, I know, he doesn't sound any different than a lot of politicians today. Maybe not even as bad. Well, my impatient listener, there's more to Mr. Hammond. I will say at this point that You of tender age or sensibilities may want to skip to the end. You see, Hammond was a micromanager, and he kept very detailed records of everything, both business and personal. And this is where it gets disturbing. Hammond left very specific instructions on how the plantation was to be run and how his slaves were to be treated. The hours they worked and the punishments inflicted, although maybe more common for that time and place, were brutal. And it's sobering to hear how these people lived and were treated. In his own writings, he admits that the death rate of slaves on his plantations were far above the average. Yet, his personal life was not redeeming in any way either. Hammond was known to refer to his wife as homely, and he often flirted with other women in public, just like her family had suspected at the start. But his journals reveal far more, in that he raped at least one of his slaves on a regular basis. One of these women gave birth to his child, who later, at the age of 12, was raped by her own father, James Hammond. To make matters even worse, if that's possible, this girl was later raped by Hammond's son. 
When his wife demanded that Hammond sell both the mother and daughter, he refused, and she left him, taking the children with her. They would eventually reconcile somewhat. But those aren't the only moral failures of Hammond. As it was, he would regularly visit his wife's relatives, Wade Hampton and his son Wade Hampton III. They were both military heroes, wealthy planners, and very powerful politicians. Well, in 1843, it came to light, and the senior Hampton found out that Hammond had been sexually abusing his four teenage daughters over the course of a number of years. Hammond's own journals admit to these atrocities, but he, of course, tries to shift the blame on the girls, saying they didn't forcefully stop him. Well, not willing to divide or tarnish the family name, Wade Hampton took no official action against him, simply banned further contact and let the rumor out into society. However, Hammond would still go on to win his Senate seat, despite this being generally known. Hampton's daughter's reputations from this were totally destroyed, and none of them ever married. Hammond would die in 1864 and was buried not far from Redcliffe. Today, his picture hangs in the entrance hall to the mansion. You'll see him there wearing his military uniform from the nullification crisis back in 1832, and he's made to look just like his hero, Napoleon Bonaparte. Kind of figures. His family, though, continued to live at Redcliffe for many successive generations. A number of the slave families also stayed on after the Civil War as tenant farmers and servants for numerous generations also, and their story and memory are kept alive here as well. The Hamptons would go on to rule South Carolina political and social circles for almost a hundred years. And today, you still see many public places and roads bearing their name. Redcliffe Plantation had a short, unsuccessful life as a slave-owning farm. The grapes, most grapes that is, with the exception of muscadines, don't grow very well here. And muscadines weren't considered a quality wine grape, so no wine was ever produced. As far as we know, the cork trees apparently were a failure. The U.S. Civil War ended slavery and the plantation system just a few years after it was completed. The Beach Island Agricultural Society, though, continued, and it drew guests like Eli Whitney, President Taft, and J.D. Rockefeller. It still meets today and is composed of Hammond descendants as well as other descendants of original members. Now, that nursery over in Augusta where Hammond bought the magnolias was eventually sold, and that land was used to build, of all things, a golf course. Maybe you've heard of Augusta National, home of the Masters? 
Hammond's great-grandson, John Shaw Billings, was born at Red Cliff. He would go on to become editor of Time, Life, and Fortune magazines. He came back and lovingly restored the house and lived here for many years. He eventually donated the estate and over 4,000 artifacts from the four generations that had lived here to the people of South Carolina in 1973. Today, it's considered a top 10 site to visit in the state and has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places since 1975. Today, you can see the old 1857 slave quarters, the mansion, and the magnolia trees, and they all tell the story of a bygone time. There are daily guided tours of the slave quarters and mansion. My guide was Duke, a young man who's probably forgotten more about the Hammond family and Redcliffe than most people will ever know. A visit here to Redcliffe is a visit to over a hundred years of southeastern history, and I'd highly encourage you go check it out. So, until next time, thanks for listening and stay curious.